Hi, this is Dr. David C. Downing, author of Planets in Peril, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. It is to remind us all Gentile Christians, who forget it easily enough and even flirt with anti-Semitism, that the Hebrews are spiritually senior to us, that God did entrust the descendants of Abraham with the first revelation of himself to put us in our place. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 45. A Hebraic Inkling. After Hours with Dr. Yakov Weinstein. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And today's quotation was from a letter which C.S. Lewis wrote to a Mrs. Johnson in 1955. And it was the epigraph to a book by Dr. P.H. Brazier. And it's called A Hebraic Inkling, C.S. Lewis on Judaism and the Jews. And Dr. P.H. Paul Brazier, he lives in Wimbledon, London, England. And since 1999, he's been a full-time caregiver for his wife, Hilary, who has epilepsy. And he holds a BA in Fine Art, an MPhil in Education, an MA and PhD in Systematic Theology. And his doctrinal work focused on the influence of Dostoevsky on the young Karl Barth's doctrine of sin and atonement. And my research also suggested that he did the graphic design work for the production of Paralandra the Opera in Oxford, and did the website and design for the Journal of Inkling Studies. However, today is, I think, a first for Pints with Jack. My guest and I will be discussing that book, but my guest did not write that book, because today I'm joined by a returning guest, Dr. Yakov Weinstein. And if you recall, Dr. Yakov Weinstein, he was our Jewish guest last season during Ecumenism Month. And he is the chief scientist at Quantum Technologies at the MITRE Corporation. And he lives in East Brunswick, New Jersey, and he blogs at Torah Fanania. Yakov, welcome back to Pints with Jack. Thank you, David. It's great to be back. Um, let me just say, I would have much rather heard a discussion with you and uh, Dr. Brazier, but uh, barring that, you're stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, it, it was kind of funny because I can't quite remember where I first saw this book referenced. But I tracked down the publisher, sent a message to them, and they very obligingly sent me a copy of the book. And then I tried to reach out to the author several times and got back no response. And so I wanted to talk about this book, but the question was, with whom? And you were the very obvious choice, because I have I have lots of thoughts about this book, but I think it, your insights are going to be particularly interesting. Before we get back to all of that, what have you been up to since the last show? Um, a couple of things, at least uh, Lewis-related. Obviously, I'm continuing to blog at Torah from Narnia. Um, lately, I've been concentrating on Narnian creation uh, and the commands that Aslan gives. Um, we'll talk about commands a little bit later, hopefully, in the show, but the commands that Aslan gives to the Narnians uh, at that time, and specifically trying to demonstrate how both contemplation and enjoyment, um, which are two ideals that find its way into a number of Lewis's writings, how they show up in the creation story as well. In addition, I wrote an article off of the original article that you found me on, talking about fear of God, um, which also ties fear of God to human relationships. Just kind of working on that. Lovely. Well, I was very tempted to drink a cup of tea today so I could reuse my joke about men making tea in the Bible since it says Hebrews. But since I spent much of today on the long drive back from Door County, had a wonderful time with my wife and her family, and driving with a toddler is always entertaining. Anyway, I needed a beer. So I'm enjoying a Bumble beer, which is a honey brown ale from Lakefront Brewery. Are you drinking anything? 
Well, first let me say I am drinking out of my Pints with Jack tumbler. Oh, it looks beautiful. So it doesn't really matter what I'm drinking. We know that <laughs> I am drinking, I'm not quite sure how this got into the house, but uh, Polar Raspberry Pink Lemonade Seltzerade. We'll see how it is. And as listeners will know, throughout this season, we have been toasting in a new language each episode. And we've pretty much just been doing that in the episodes where we're talking about Out of the Silent Planet, since it's Ransom who is learning old solar. But I couldn't resist. Actually, it was Yakov that suggested it. So rather than cheers, I'm just going to say, L'chaim. L'chaim. So the author of our book today, A Hebraic Inkling, He says that the goal in writing the book was to describe what Lewis believed and wrote about the ancient Hebrews, their scriptures, their status as God's chosen people, and today's Jews. And as I mentioned before, I have lots of thoughts, lots of questions, but I'd really like you to drive this discussion given that the subject matter relates both to your ethnicity and your faith. And the book is divided into three parts, so what I'd like to do is just look at them broadly, each section in turn. But before we get to that, what did you think of this book as a whole? So well, let me start. Let me start as follows: uh, When you first uh, sent me the idea of, of talking about this book, I wasn't too keen on it for the very reason that I'm not that interested in the fact whether Lewis personally was nice to Jews or not nice to Jews, whether he had good relationships with people who are Jewish um, or not. Not that that's not important in a general sense, and not that we shouldn't learn from positive things that people do. Of course, we should. But a priori, that's not going to really help me grow or I think your readers grow in the relationship with God, which is, I think, um, the goal of what we're trying to do here with Pines with Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, reading, after reading the description and looking a little bit further into it, um, I thought maybe that's not quite how the book is structured, and it is not. <laughs> I found this is a fascinating book, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't agree with, some of which I'm confused by, some of which I might understand. But let me just say that even before he, um, Brazier starts the book, he has a long introduction in which he not only defines numerous terms, which he thinks are important for the book, but he also goes through chapter by chapter and talks about what he's trying to accomplish with each chapter. Let me also just note before we, before we go into it, that this, in my, in, from my perspective, this is not a book about Judaism. This is a book about Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it is not my place as a non-Christian to tell Christians what to think. Um, so any statement that I make with respect to Christianity, um, I'm going to apologize in advance. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try to do my best to stay within the confines of the book and try to either explain what Brazier is trying to get to or discuss why I may agree or disagree with him. But in no way do I want to construe that it's my place to um, tr- influence Christians as to what they should think or what, what they should not think. Um, and in addition, if I do criticize something about Christianity, please, I'm not trying to say anything personal. It's really just a matter of trying to understand. So I'm going to ask for forgiveness uh, a priori for all of that, and then we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Deal. Let's look at the first third of the book, which deals with the subject of revelation. It speaks about the young C.S. Lewis, and then it focuses on the relationship between the Hebrews, Jews, and God as well as ideas of holiness and pride. What were your thoughts on this section? So so to begin with, I think we're already struck by a question. If this were an academic work, we would find Brazier trying to define for us a Hebraic inkling. What, is, what does that mean? 
and set up a model of what a perfect Turing inkling should be, and then measure up C.S. Lewis against that perfect model. I think that's what a dispassionate uh, academic would try to accomplish. Of course, uh, we know Lewis's feelings on academics. He says in Screw Tape Letters, when a learned man is presented with any statement in an ancient author, the one question he never asks is whether it is true. That is an academic <laughs> approach. That is not Brazier's approach. Brazier puts himself very much into this book. He clearly has some strong feelings about Christianity and the way that Christians should, should think, the way that they should believe, and their theology as a whole. And he is not dispassionate. He is more than willing to criticize Lewis, the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant churches, uh, and Western ideology, both modern and ancient, and everything in between. Um, and that's great. We like passionate people. Certainly in Judaism, <laughs> we like passionate people. And uh, even if we disagree with them, that's totally okay. Uh, we like people who are willing to, uh, you'll just forgive the expression, die for their beliefs. The approach that he takes as one of starting with Lewis's biography, I think highlights that point. He's not trying to set up a model. He's trying to follow the life of Lewis, see how Lewis matches up with his um, ideal of a Hebraic inkling, which again, he doesn't define a priori, um, and how that changes throughout Lewis's life, busy how he gets closer, how Brazier feels that Lewis gets closer to this paradigmatic Hebraic inkling um, that he has in mind. So I think that's just a good thing to keep in mind as you as one would go through this book. Yeah, and I'm going to show my cards a little early as well. I found the book kind of meandering. I know he took the time to try and explain what he thought each chapter was going to achieve, but it did seem to be a little all over the place. And we've mentioned the fact that he has no problem pointing out who he disagrees with. I did find the tone shift quite a few times. Sometimes it did sound much more scholarly and a little bit more dry, other times very conversational, and then other times quite aggressive at the people that he disagrees with. Agreed, agreed, uh, 100%. And he returns to the same subject numerous times, sometimes from different perspectives, sometimes really from the same perspective. I'm not sure that that degrades from the book per se. I guess it really depends what type of a mood, at least for me, what type of mood I'm in when I'm reading that particular part. Um, but yes, he attempts a structure. I'm not sure that he totally fills it, as, as you said, David. I agree with that point, for sure. So any other thoughts on this on this first section then? In the first chapter, he really goes through, the first chapter, the beginning of the second chapter, he, um, he really goes through, um, I think what most of your listeners already know, which is Lewis's biography from the time he was a child, loss of his mother, going through his time um, in school and what he suffered while he was there, his participation in World War One, his returning to Oxford, um, and, you know, his eventual conversion to, to Christianity. If throughout that, he measures, Brazier measures Lewis against some sort of Hebraic, um, let's say Hebraic ideal, or, you know, Christian Hebraic ideal. Um, and he, he does it in an interesting way at various points. He kind of ties it through the history of the Israelites as they change and evolve through scripture. And specifically, what he concentrates on is the names of God and how the names of God play a role in the Hebrew Bible. He definitely has done his homework. Um, he has looked up both the primary and some of the secondary sources on the meanings of, you know, what we as what I myself as a Jew believe um, to be the names of God. And he outlines different different names, what they mean, um, the difference between something like the Tetragrammaton, which is the four-letter name of God, 
which uh, we as Jews do not pronounce, um, and compares that with God when he's called the merciful one, the gracious one, and so on and so forth, which are not innate names, they're more descriptive names. So he does, you know, he, he really does good homework uh, through that. And then he tries to demonstrate that as Lewis grows in his belief, he goes from a more, let's say, aloof name of God, um, something like um, what we would say in Hebrew, Elohim, which is God as, as judge, to a more personal name of God, which is the Tetragrammaton. And and he doesn't he doesn't point this out, Brazier, but we actually see this already in in the first two chapters of Genesis. So in the first mm-hmm. chapter of Genesis, it's the name Elohim, God is judge, that is that is used, and that leads to the fact that you know in the first chapter of Genesis, creation is very orderly. There's day one, there's day two, there's day three, there's day four, and so on and so forth. And there, everything has its place, everything fits in, and man is the pinnacle of creation, but still just one of many things that are created. If you go to Genesis 2, then we see that the name of God Elohim is now joined by the Tetragrammaton. It's what we would say Hashem is in the name, which refers to the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew. It's Hashem Elohim. And that already adds a personal flavor into the story. And in fact, in the second chapter of Genesis, starting with verse 5, um, we see a much more man-centered creation, right? There is, there is man, there's no grass, nothing is grown. Man needs to pray for there to be a cloud that will come up and eventually water the earth and have the plants grow. And so, you know, again, Grazier doesn't point this out, but I think that um, uh, this suggestion of Grazier that Lewis's conversion from an aloof god or a majestic god that uh, created the entire universe to a much more focused, much more personal god is something that we do see um, in the in, in the Hebrew Bible. So let me, let me also just note, I'm using the Hebrew Bible because he uses the term Hebrew Bible. <laughs> sure thing, sure thing. And and I did particularly like that section. I liked the idea because it does track with Lewis's broad conversion process. First of all, coming to believe in some kind of divinity and that divinity gets increasingly more concrete and personal as he progresses in his in his spiritual journey. I would actually say that's just, that's, that was probably one of my favorite bits of the book. Yeah, I thought he did really nicely in that. In fact, I think it would be interesting as a whole to talk to people, um, Christian or non-Christian, but people who have come closer to religion throughout their lives and see, like, are people, um, do people become more convinced because there's some sort of maybe scientific reason that they feel um, forces God, some sort of first mover type argument, or are people won over more by the fact there's a personal God that you can rely on that's always there, that you can always talk to, that you can always connect with. Hmm. Um, I think that would be an interesting question. Presumably the answer is depends on the person. But in terms of Lewis, I think he really I think he really gets it, gets it straight on. Hmm. And in that first section, he he does uh, a bunch of comparison with Karl Barth, Christian theologian. Um, and he also speaks about the question of chosenness. Would you speak to that for a little bit? Sure. So with respect to Karl Barth, so um, Barth is in a different milieu than Lewis, um, as we'll see later. Brazier is a is a bit. Um, I want to. I almost want to say chastised, though that may be a little bit strong. Um, but but he's a bit critical of Lewis for Lewis's what he says is Lewis's dispassionate approach to certain areas of judgment, cursings, um, revenge, and so on and so forth. And that's because Brazier says Lewis is in England. Um, and while World War II is coming closer, and certainly with the carpet, with, with the bombing of the Nazis, it is, it becomes very close. But, you know, Lewis is generally safe, um, has a set, steady job, 
is not really in the midst of things. Barth, of course, is is in Germany mm. in World War II and needs to, and he does eventually sacrifice his position because he believes in the chosenness of, of Israel. But both, um, Brazier says, believe that Israel plays a primary role in Christianity. Um, Israel is the nation chosen by God. Brazier points out, though he says Lewis doesn't understand this, um, but Brazier points out that Israel is not a chosen nation in the sense of there are a bunch of nations and God chose one, but it's a created mm-hmm. nation. Right? God chose Abraham, God chose uh, the father of the nation and said, I'm going to build a nation from you that is to be chosen. And so Barth, um, Brazier believes, knows that explicitly. He doesn't really believe that Lewis knows that, but they come to the same conclusion that Israel is the chosen one and that Gentiles, as they come closer to Jesus, can be grafted onto the Jewish tree or Jewish vine, as it were, and mm. become part of the elected, part of those who are chosen. I mean, so that's the, that's the comparison he, he makes. And that's, that's drawing chiefly off Romans 11, where Paul describes that process, basically saying that the chosen people haven't been forsaken at all, uh, but you get to be grafted in as well. Don't take your place for granted. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah. uh, but nobody should take their place for granted. It's uh, you know, irrelevant whether it's Jew or Gentile. But that then relates to um, Lewis's thesis, which I think, again, which I think Brazier does well, um, chosen for the sake of the unchosen. And you know, that is a very sticky subject, um, certainly for, for Jews. Um, the fact that Jews say they are the chosen people sometimes raises, um, uh, sometimes raises the hackles uh, of others. But Lewis nails it right on the head. The idea of being chosen is not for one's own sake, but the idea of being chosen is to, is to assist others. And certainly as Jews, and Brazier basically says this, he doesn't say quite as simply as I think I'm, I'm going to right now, um, there's a verse in Exodus that says that the Jews are chosen to be which literally means a nation of, uh, of priests and a holy nation. Um, and that's the parallel, right? A priest is not better innately, right? A priest is one who is chosen um, in order to help, to help others. And while it is true that in modern day, people have the ability to become priests, uh, even if they are not born so, and people have the ability in Judaism to become rabbis, even if they are not born so, there is, and Lewis points this out also, there is perhaps an advantage in having a people who know from birth that their job is to be that nation that is to help, that is to help others. And so Lewis's point then is that, yes, it is true that Israel is this chosen is, is a chosen nation, chosen in order to assist and to guide um, humanity as a whole towards the belief um, and worship of the one God. But it's not, that's not meant to be exclusive. That's meant to be, these are the people who are chosen, and, and you can also be chosen. In Christianity, from the Christian point of view would be, you can be chosen by following um, and being a believer, a believer in Jesus. Hmm. There is one thing that Brazier says, which I have to say, I'm not, I'm not super happy with, um, which is that Brazier says that the chosen nation is chosen for salvation. I have to say, I, I don't like that. Um, I don't believe just because somebody is chosen, or even if somebody who chooses to be chosen, automatically gains salvation. Now, I think in Christianity, you then get into that question of uh, um, salvation based on works or salvation based on beliefs. Mm-hmm. That is not a Jewish problem. That is a Christian issue to struggle with. Um, but I think in Judaism, the, the situation is very clear. You can be you can be chosen. You can be a member of the Jewish people and still you know, be an evil individual um, and not 
uh, we, we wouldn't use the term salvation per se, but not achieve ultimate reward. So I'll push back on Brazier a little bit of what he says on, on page six, that election, uh, those who are elected to salvation or for salvation. I don't, I don't like that one, that formulation uh, too much. I would agree with you. And I'm actually going to call Jesus to my side on this one as well, because there's, there's a passage where he's speaking to uh, the religious establishment at the time. And he says, you say that we are children of Abraham. God can raise children of Abraham from these stones. Basically, that, that, that doesn't mean that you're good. <laughs> I found when I was reading this section, I don't know if it's just like the particular religious milieu in which I was raised. A lot of this seemed just to flow very naturally in terms of the, the point he seemed to be really fighting for. I'd always thought was fairly obvious from scripture, the idea of the chosen people, they were called to be a light to the nations. That's that's what Isaiah says that they're for. Um, and repeatedly speaking of the nation of Israel as almost the older brother in the family of nations. And the older brother is meant to guide and teach the, the younger siblings. I am expecting a daughter in a month. I am really hoping that my son, who I've spent two years trying to teach not to lick the sockets in our, in, in our house, I'm really hoping he's going to pass on this, this information and this way of living to my daughter so I don't have to micromanage in that fashion. I'm glad to hear you say that, David, because like I was confused also because um, now I'm obviously coming from a different perspective. My understanding of Christian belief was in fact that. And so I spoke to a couple of people that I know who are either Christian or, or former Christian. Um, and I asked them, like, is this something novel? Is this something like, isn't this obvious? And they said, yeah. I mean, Paul says it explicitly. I'm like, okay, so what's the, what's the big deal? You know, some of my friends who are no longer, no longer Christian, um, you know, felt that it was there, but that Christians don't believe it. I cannot judge that. I'm not, I'm not going to try to judge that. Um, I, ho I hope it's not true. Um, and obviously the person who's, who's speaking then is not necessarily um, dispassionate about that either. Yeah, I, I think it's probably influenced by, uh, in the wake of the Reformation, there were some very particular odd ideas that, that got kicked around about how salvation works um, and the question of, well, how does this relate to the children of the Mosaic Covenant? Uh, and you had a number of different systems that were that were presented, uh, and I've got a feeling that's what he's responding to, but I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, I I, I reached the same conclusion of, as you. It's like I, I disagree with a couple of these points here. I think that could have also have done with being teased out a little bit more. Sometimes in terms of who he's responding to, presenting the idea that he's explicitly rejecting, and some of the people who have proposed this, I think I would have found that helpful. Right. Um, there there is another point that Brazier brings up, which I. I think starts then flowing into the next section, um, which is the superiority or pride in religious or ethical belief and understanding. I'm a little bit torn about that because I'm not quite sure where he's going. So on the one hand, he says Christians shouldn't be proud of their let's stick with ethics for the moment um, because basically everything they get, everything that Christians have really has its source in the Hebrew Bible and therefore um, having pride over the Jews for that is just kind of like cutting off the branch that you, you know that you were attached to. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he seems to also say it more globally. I'm not quite sure if he means it or not. Um, certainly, Razier believes that Christianity is the true religion. Um, and I, I assume he believes that it's the true religion even more than, than Judaism is. And I mean, that's what he should believe as a, as a Christian. So I, su I assume he does, mm -hmm. you know, so I, I understand that one shouldn't necessarily be proud uh, in a superiority um, sense, but believing that one is correct, I think is natural and required. Mm. 
by by any religion. So I'm not quite sure where he was going, where he was going with some of that. See, I chuckled on that bit because it made me think of Lewis. What does Lewis say? Define and describe rather than just simply praise and dispraise. So what do we mean by pride? And then we turn to mere Christianity where he gives a number of different definitions of what we can be speaking about when we speak of pride. And he says that there's lots of things when we say we're proud of something and we indeed should be. Uh, the fact that when our team wins, when we do well after we've spent a lot of time working hard on something, and you know, the ideal is that when we die, that God will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And we should be proud if we hear those words. So yeah, on that section, I also I'd have liked a little bit more of define and describe before coming down to praise or dispraise. I would say though that within the first section, um, I'm more or less willing to buy Brazier's main thesis. I believe that Brazier does um, a reasonably good job in saying that Lewis's belief that Christianity grows on the vine of Judaism um, and his general respect for Jewish culture, not to mention his defense of Jews against um, the rants of Hitler and the rise of Nazism in, in Germany, puts him squarely into um, the Hebraic inkling camp. Mm-hmm. Again, there's, you know, exactly that hasn't totally been been defined yet, but assuming some sort of definition that Israel is the vine and then Christianity is um, grafted to it, that seems like a reasonable. Um, it seems like a reasonable thesis at this point. Mm. It, it might come up later, but one of the other things he doesn't actually really define is anti-Semitism, which I think is. Very, it's 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 problematic because it's a term that can be wielded like a cudgel yes. against people who say things that you just don't quite agree with. <laughs> Absolutely, and and I think the description per se, I think, has a lot of charge to it. Hmm. Certainly nowadays, it, it does. I would want to be a lot more careful with that term. I think um, when we start the third section, it's probably a really good place to define anti-Semitism. But I think I think he means something like something as follows. Let me let me change the tables a little bit. Um, and, and put it this way. So, of course, it's well known that um, the family tree of Jesus is recorded differently in the different, in the different Gospels. Mm-hmm. Luke and Matthew. So, so that's well known. So I, as a Jew, can say, well, listen, the Gospels are not true. And my proof is that you can't even tell me, you know, who the ancestry of the Christian Messiah is. You know, and if I were arguing from a purely rhetorical perspective, um, as I learned to do when I was growing up as a method of anti-missionary, then that would be a, that would be a reasonable argument. But in truth, if I'm discussing um, and trying to get to truth, that argument only holds um, holds water if in the work that I believe are holy and I believe are true doesn't have such mistakes. Mm-hmm. But in fact, that's not true. If you compare Chronicles to Genesis um, or Chronicles to you know, Kings, then you're, you're going to see different lineages of people. And so I have to be, either I have to help come up with a really good way to differentiate between those two, or I have to accept the fact that you know what, lineage is either not always recorded properly, or that lineage sometimes emphasizes certain people as opposed to other people and is not necessarily global. And so if I were to then you know, again, speaking from a mode of truth, if I were to then turn around and say the Gospels are false because the lineage is uh, is inconsistent, that would be anti-Christian. 
because I'm not holding myself to the same standard as I am as I am Christianity. And so I think that's where Brazier is going with the term anti-Semitic. Hmm. He certainly doesn't mean it in the clo- way it's used colloquially as somebody who hates Jews. The suggestion that he um, knocks down at the beginning of the Pope that Lewis is, is, is anti-Semitic, I mean, is a priori just, um, uh, I'll use a good Yiddish term, it's just Narishkeit. Okay, Narishkeit is a Yiddish word that I want to try to get more into English like we have with chutzpah and various other you know Yiddish words because it's such a great word. It's like, Narishkeit is like a combination between foolishness, nonsense, and nothingness. I like it. And so the suggestion that, you know, Lewis is, is anti-Semitic in a, in a hateful way is, uh, as he knows, part of it anywhere. And so that should be like just tabled right away. There's nothing, there's nothing even to talk about there. Already now, Brazier is getting into a much more subtle form of, you know, not treating other religions as you would your own. I'm not willing to brand that anti-Semitic, um, by any means. Um, I'm, I'm willing to maybe call it, inconsistency. I'm not sure I'm even willing to give that the term hypocrisy, to be totally honest with you. Though Brazier does that also. Hmm. With that, let's, let's talk about part two, and then we'll, we can circle back to this in part three. So in part two of the book, he considers the subject of Hebrew scripture, first part of the Bible, whatever your listeners want to think of it as, focusing on its historicity. Unsurprisingly, he spends a lot of time talking about the Psalms because Lewis wrote his book, Reflections on the Psalms, which I'm also going to pencil you in for in a couple of years because we're definitely going to be doing talking about that. What, what did you think of this section when he's talking about scripture? So I have to say, I was impressed because I read Reflections on Psalms and um, there were certain parts that I really did not agree with Lewis on and Brazier hits them all. I'd say <laughs> he like, bats a thousand on this. But, okay, so as a whole, I would say first, Brazier has again, very strong uh, feelings and opinions as to how a Hebraic Christian should approach the Hebrew scripture. And I would say on that level, Lewis does not get on 100. Hmm. I'm not sure that Lewis fails, but he doesn't seem to do so well in the way Brazier describes it. A number of things that, that he points out that I think are internally, um, in terms of Christian belief, let's say, questionable or difficult to understand. And then there are some things that actually I would push on that Brazier doesn't push as hard um, as, as I might. In terms of certain ones of the, the Psalms, judging, cursing, uh, and so on and so forth. So um, Brazier spends a lot of time here trying to differentiate the milieu between um, the ancient uh, Israelites as an agrarian society surrounded by barbaric pagan tribes who are trying to destroy them, um, and modern-day England, or you know, 19, 1940s, 1950s England, which Lewis um, is part of, and just the difference between them. And there are numerous differences between them, some of which Brazier calls out as to um, why the ancient Israelites are going to be much more interested in things like welcoming judgment, cursing their enemies, to the point of the one verse in Psalm 123, I think it is, where the psalmist calls out for um, even the babies of the enemies to be smashed on on the rocks. And so certainly that's that's troubling. Um, uh, Brazier notes that it's troubling for Christians. I'm sure you're not surprised that's troubling for, Jew- for Jews as well. Um, but Brazier notes that Lewis did give blessings to the pilots uh, in World War II who were going to carpet bomb 
uh, Dresden, and in that way did exactly what was said in the Psalms. You know, killed innocent innocent babies, and Lewis understood the desperation uh, of that of, of that need. And so Brazier calls it unfair that um, Lewis shouldn't understand the Jews' desperation in a similar in a similar sense. And I think Brazier makes some realistic points in that. Um, and we don't need to even go back to ancient Israel. We could just go back to uh, to World War II and the Holocaust and see that the Germans, in fact, did the exact same thing. You know, they did take babies and spear them on bayonets and and so on and so forth. We have eyewitness, you know, eyewitness testimony to that. So I think that's that's Brazier's major criticism there. I'd like to I'd like to hear what you think on that. Yeah, we're, particularly when I've been speaking to people about Lewis's corpus, I would say Reflections on the Psalms is one of those books that people really like certain bits of it, and there are some bits that they kind of get up in arms over. And it is very typically his handling of the imprecatory psalms. The psalms are calling calling down cursing, calling down destruction on on the enemy. And I mean, in the history of theology, there's a there's a lot of ways that people have looked at those psalms. How do they reconcile them? Some regard them as simply the emotional outpouring of people furious against the enemy who's just humiliated them and therefore seeing this not so much as justification for genocide and infanticide but for crying out to god in all of your anger and not trying to scrub your language and your emotions into its sunday school best so to speak a lot of the fathers spoke about those those passages as allegorical uh, seeing the children of Israel struggle against uh, their enemies as our struggle with sin and with the powers of darkness. And so, yeah, so the way Lewis tackles that, I don't find it typically gets a particularly strong blessing from most people who I know who are Lewis fans. They, they prefer other ways of wrestling with the text. And also I'd say maybe wrestling with it a little bit longer than the space that Lewis gives gives it in that book. It did seem to me like that should have been a book-length treatment, and just dealing with it in a chapter or two seems like you're giving it a little bit short shrift and a little bit too much of an almost neat answer. Perhaps ironically, um, one of the things that helped me understand some of these psalms and some of the things that we recite to this day in our prayers as Jews um, is the concentric circles that... Um, that Lewis lays out in uh, the screw tape letters. If you remember, and I think we actually mentioned this last time we, we spoke, mm-hmm. screw tape wants all virtues pushed to the outermost circle. Like, yes, we should have compassion for the people living thousands of miles away. We should feel bad for the animals that are, you know, across the oceans. And, you know, and so, yes, we have warm, charitable, positive feelings towards those people and those creatures while you know, we're horrible to our neighbors and, you know, terrible to the dog next door because he barks too loudly. And, you know, that's that, that sort of thing. And so Lewis notes, and he notes explicitly in that um, letter that the British are terrible because, you know, from Screwtape's perspective, because the British are the yeah. ones who are shouting how they're going <laughs> to kill and destroy and maim all the Germans. But, you know, should ever a German soldier, you know, knock on the door, they would serve them tea and crumpets. So, you know, that's my approach to to, to some of these Psalms and some of these Sometimes it's just cleansing um, or just truthful, um, especially when speaking to God. This is what I feel. I would never do it, but I still feel this way. 
And you know what? Talking about it is actually going to help me just get it out of my system so it can actually be, you know, a proper uh, gentleman uh, when I actually do come, uh, you know, c- come in contact with these people. So I don't know if that's helpful or, or, or not. That's kind of like, you know, some of the ways I, I look at it using Lewis's uh, theology. Mm, I, I like that a lot. Years ago, I was giving a talk on reading scripture and somebody, somebody asked in the audience afterwards, what do you do if you just feel like you don't get anything out of scripture? My suggestion was to pray the Psalms because you're going to be feeling one of those emotions in there, one way or the other. Just keep going until you find the emotion, the emotion that echoes within your soul and then stick with that for a while. And I think, you know, Brazier again doesn't mention it this way, but I think this is part of what we're starting to see. And also maybe we'll see a little bit more in, in, in the third section. Going back to uh, meditation in the tool shed, the difference between contemplation and enjoyment, a difference between looking at the beam and looking along the beam. And I think in a lot of that, um, uh, that analysis of the imprecatory psalms, Lewis is looking at the beam. He's not looking along the beam, Hmm. right? Exactly what you said, David. Pray the psalms. Don't just study the psalms. You'll pray the psalms and you'll see that things are, things are different. Yeah. I want to, get on and talk about section three, where we talk about family. But something else that's worth mentioning in this second part was about prefigurement yes. in the myth and the Psalms. So would you like to speak into that for a little bit? Yeah. So I actually, I actually thought this section was very, very much on target. And, and I think Razi does a really good job of bringing out Lewis's thoughts on this. And so this is also something that we actually hinted to last time when we spoke. When there is a singular event in history, right, um, like for Christianity, be it the resurrection, or in Judaism, uh, the exodus from Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. That singular event has ripples throughout space time. And so therefore, the ripples are felt not just in the future, obviously they're felt in the future, but the ripples are even felt in the past. Yeah. And so if we put the resurrection of Jesus at the center of history, then there has to be ripples of that in the past. Hmm. And in fact, as, as Lewis says, and Brazier points out, every wise statement, every wise individual, every book related to theology has to somehow encompass that in it. Whether the authors knowingly did that or not is irrelevant. If they are sufficiently spiritual, they will have felt it, even if they don't know what they're writing. Brazier even points out, again, based on what Lewis said, that it doesn't even have to be a particularly wise individuals, even could be evil individuals who will say things that will actually hint to the truth. But certainly someone who is wise will have that incorporated in them, within their statements, um, because they must. They must. It's because the universe history is impossible without this one event. Again, Brazier doesn't do this, but I think, I, I think it's useful to differentiate in this way between prophecy and prefigurement, right? Mm-hmm. Prophecy, and again, that's a whole nother, another topic perhaps for a different time, but prophecy is usually assumed to be the prediction that something will happen um, explicitly. Prefigurement is not necessarily that. Prefigurement is that the words or the ideas, the ideals, the concepts that are put forward by those who are spiritually sensitive will automatically encompass these future events because all of history depends on it. And so Brazier does this in, uh, in a number of sections, uh, again, based, of course, based on Lewis. So first, in terms of Lewis's fascination with northernness and the Norse gods, um, and Lewis sees this particularly in a story of Balder, 
um, who is in his mind the leading, I guess, leading ones or the best story of the corn kings, uh, gods who have died and then come back alive. And of course, generally, these are referring to gods in which there are, we're talking about polytheism, and there's some special type of god who is killed and then, and then comes back alive, or in the case of Baldur, doesn't come back alive. <laughs> but if it's true even for, uh, even in pagan myth, then it must be true in Judaism. Um, because, again, from a Christian point of view, the climax, in a sense, or a climax of, uh, of Judaism is the coming of Jesus. And therefore, the Psalms, and not only the Psalms, uh, the prophets themselves, have to foreshadow or prefigure his coming. So I actually like, uh, I liked how Brazier did that. I thought he did that very well. Um, he does it here. He does it later. He does it a little bit before also. So he does it in a number of different places, but this is the main part. Um, and I thought, I, I thought he did that very nicely. I will note that as Jews, so we are not going to prefigure in the same way that Christians will, but, uh, but certainly Jews believe that when a prophecy is written down, the prophecy is written for that time and for future use. So you might see that there are various prophets, certainly in the 12 minor prophets, which are relatively short. You'll see one prophecy or two prophecies. Um, from a Jewish perspective, this doesn't mean those are the only, the only prophecies that that person said. The person may have made you know, numerous prophecies, um, more than which are recorded. However, the recorded ones are special because they are the ones that have future um, uh, use as well. And so if they have future use, then there must be a prefigurement within them. So I think Judaism agrees to the idea of prefigurement. Um, Brazier and Lewis mentioned Psalm 22 as referring to Jesus. Um, interestingly enough, so the Talmud regards Psalm 22 as referring to Esther, um, who comes in the time between the first and second uh, temples. So the idea of prefigurement um, has utilization and has uh, precedence in Judaism as well, though not necessarily aimed towards the same, towards the same event. Sure. And speaking personally, when I started reading about the, the prefigurement and specifically uh, typology, so it's the idea that God isn't only writing his scripture through his prophets, but through the events of history, and that these things are meant to prepare us for what comes later, that really revolutionized my reading of scripture, particularly uh, the earlier books as found in the Pentateuch. Yeah, we should do an episode on that at some point. That'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I should just note, I, I don't know if keep this in or not, but like, it's like just a little too um, uh, almost raw to like skip over. He, he quotes this ultra-Orthodox rabbi about the different Jews in the Holocaust. I don't know if you remember this part, David. Um, but he, he, he says, Brazier says, he spoke to an ultra-Orthodox rabbi who described three types of Jews in the, in the concentration camps. He says there are Jews who basically tried to convince the Germans that we're not really Jewish, we're German too, we just like you, um, and that those people were killed by the Germans and went to hell. Um, and then he says there were some Jews who kind of just let things go and, you know, let things fall, didn't really say anything, and um, uh, they were killed also, of course. Um, and they either went to heaven or they you know, had to go through some sort of cleansing before that based on how, you know, how, how good these people were. And then there were some Jews who um, spoke out against the Germans and called them all sorts of names and cursed them and, and said those, those Jews went straight to heaven without any, any necessary cleansing. So I just want to note, <laughs> I, I understand where that person is coming from. And that is a relevant statement for someone who went through the camps. In modern Judaism, we refer to six million holy, holy souls, knowing full well that there were amongst those six million people who were evil 
people who were not honest, frankly, many people who were not Jewish, um, through no fault of their own, but people who were purely, from Arab perspective, Christian. But they're all part of the Holy Ones because they were killed as Jews and as uh, by an enemy that was trying to wipe us out. And so just going to point that out because like that part is so, <laughs> I don't know, it's so like, uh, it's so emotional to me. At, at that time, if someone who went through, I can understand. Um, and again, you know, in, in Judaism, basically anyone who went through the Holocaust gets a free pass on everything because none of us can understand those horrors. Um, and so I think, I, I think that's appropriate. Afterwards, when we look back, even the Jews who, you know, perhaps weren't so good um, and didn't do the right thing, like, it would be very hard to say that such a person, you know, did, did something evil. Mm. Well, we're kind of back at the imprecatory Psalms again. So the final portion of the book focuses on family, and it digs into Lois's relationship and marriage to Joy Davidman, who was herself of Jewish descent. This is the section I'm really curious about. What did you make of this? <laughs> Okay, well, but before before we get to that part, we have to talk about your favorite book, um, which is The Great Divorce. Absolutely. Maybe you should talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he mentions uh, the fact that there is a possible Jewish character in that book. And this went completely over my head. It was actually only when we had Dr. David Clark on the show. He had written a book about The Great Divorce. And this was the first time that Sarah Smith of Goulders Green was highlighted to me as somebody that was possibly of Jewish descent. And of course, the downstream impact of that is pretty big. It is. Okay, so I, I want to mention two things here. So first of all, I totally missed it also. So I don't know if that makes you feel better or not feel better. <laughs> Thank goodness. I feel better. <laughs> and I know people who live in Golders Green. It's not like, you know, I know Jews who live in Golders Green. So, so yes, I mean, my, my sister and brother-in-law uh, don't live in Golders Green. They do live in London. They don't live in Golders Green, though. But, um, but everybody knows. I mean, okay, everybody, you know, all Orthodox Jews know that Golders Green is like Golders Green. But it didn't strike me um, that Sarah Smith should be of, of Jewish descent until I read about it here in the Hebraic Inkling and then went back to Lynn Skrug's article um, about it. But I think the, I think the argument is well made, um, given the description of Golders Green and the fact that it was a place where Jews went similar to places in Brooklyn, um, or the Lower East Side in New York. Sarah is obviously a Jewish name, but of course it's a Christian name too. So that a priori is not, is not a proof. I was saying in the United States, Smith is not a very Jewish name. I don't know anybody named Smith. Okay. Just because I don't know them doesn't mean anything, but certainly not a Jewish name. In England, there tends to be more English names amongst Jews than there are, I think, in the United States. Um, I don't know if that's, that's only my anecdotal thoughts. I don't know if that's evidently true. Um, but it could be. Um, it could be that that's true, which would be extremely interesting. And of course, there's no proof there as to whether she's Jewish, whether she's remains Jewish, whether she's a Jewish convert to Christianity or anything in between. It's completely uh, undefined. But it's also, I think, I, I actually think that this was one of the motivations for Brazier to write this book. I, I, he doesn't he doesn't say it. But <laughs> Linz Krug's argument is that this demonstrates that C.S. Lewis is anti-anti-Semitic. That is, in my mind, that's an understatement. There, there are a lot of people who are against anti-Semitism. Christians, Muslims, atheists, people of all stripes and colors and, and, and everything else. You know, there are plenty of wonderful people who are against anti-Semitism. So to merely call... C.S. Lewis anti-Semitic because, um, uh, you know, based on this is way too understated. You know, I think this is in, in some sense the best proof that 
Lewis is a Hebraic inkling because he's putting as the heroine of the great divorce, someone who comes from at a minimum based on, based on this reading, the minimum from Jewish stock. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Razier is like writing this book to show that Lundskog is just being totally understated um, here. I think you very well could be right. There, there are certainly a few topics within the book that he seems to put an awful lot more pressure on. They seem to be things that are much more personal to him, and this certainly is one of them. That's what it seems to me. So I, I think this is actually very good evidence that um, Brazier's thesis is, is, is correct. And then he also goes into what he calls a scandal of particularity. You know, the fact, again, this goes back into chosenness, but the realization um, from Lewis and Barth that Jesus was Jewish, which as far as I know, nobody questions. And therefore, it was Jewish flesh and Jewish blood that was spilt um, on the cross. And for Christians to not recognize that um, would be, again, you know, cutting off the branch that they're sitting on. And so again, I think that um, Lewis's note of this uh, fits very well into Brazier's thesis that Lewis is in fact a Hebraic inkling. And one thing that this section reminded me of that's probably worth sharing because I find a lot of people don't actually know this or think about it. Uh, in the liturgical calendar of the Catholic Church, we celebrate Christ's presentation in the temple, and associated with that is his circumcision. And it's pointed out by a lot of our theologians that Christ's shed blood on the cross is of obviously of utmost importance, but the place where he first shed blood was when he was circumcised, according to the Mosaic Covenant. That would be logical, given the origin. Now, I know there were some bits of this that you weren't quite so happy with, so lay it on me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so with David Min, so I think, there's a, I think there's a general question here, which is worth thinking about first. And I, I admit up front that I, I had a chance to kind of scan through Smoky Mountain Everyone's work on the Decalogue mm -hmm. um, with the Ten Commandments, but I didn't have a chance to read it in depth. Future episode, Pints with Jack, you're on it. Continue. <laughs> so, so with that kind of as, as an introduction, as I'm sure you know, um, there have been a number, probably in, probably we can't find that number totally, but there have been a number of famous Jewish converts to Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say there's a spectrum, there's a spectrum of them. On the, I would say on the, on the one hand, you have someone like Pablo Cristiani, who famously in the 13th century argued against the Talmud, had a famous debate with Nachmanides um, about the Talmud and about Judaism, and who was very much anti-Jewish and would be the opposite of the Hebraic Christian that Brazier is trying to define. Um, and his name, Pablo Cristiani, is held with contempt by Jews effectively forevermore. On the other hand, you have someone like uh, Aaron Jean-Marie Jean -Marie Lustiger, and I apologize for not being able to pronounce the French properly, um, who was the Cardinal Jean-Marie. I'm trusting you on this one, David. <laughs> who was a Jewish convert to Christianity, but was very much a, a friend of the Jews um, and very much wanted um, the Catholic Church to get along with the Jews um, to the point where he arranged for visits of cardinals to various Jewish schools, various Jewish yeshivas, and was able to present an ancient scroll, an ancient Torah scroll to um, Yeshiva University. You know, there's even, at least on Wikipedia, uh, the story that, um, uh, that he went to synagogue to say Kaddish, um, which is the mourner's prayer for his, for his mother in commemoration of the day that she died. And, you know, what Jews do um, in terms of our thoughts 
uh, with someone like that, who, you know, from our perspective, gave up on Judaism for Christianity, but from his perspective, just fulfilled his Judaism via Christianity, that's our problem. You know, that is a Jewish problem. But the fact that he was a friend of the Jews is, um, from my perspective, indisputable. You know, and so, and so we have a range from Jews who convert to Christianity who turn around and hate their former religion and Jews who convert to Christianity, let's say, in what they believe is a fulfillment of their former religion, but have, you know, fond, not only fond memories, but also um, fond feelings towards their former co-religionists. Mm-hmm. And Brazier wants to make David Men like Listiger. And I'm not convinced that she is. I don't see any proof that she is. I don't think Brazier has brought any proof that she is. And in reading Smoky Mountain, I didn't, again, only glancing through it, but I didn't see any proof that she is. To me, um, David Min's attitude seems much more, this is what the Jews believed and things would be better if they were Christian instead. Okay, that's an understandable point of view from someone who's become Christian, um, recognizing the Judaism that David Min grew up with was not a religious Judaism, it was a cultural Judaism. Again, Brazier doesn't formulate it this way, but the way I would formulate it is, I think Brazier wants David Min to look, to be able to look along the beam of Judaism and find Christianity. Hmm. When, in fact, if David Min looked along any beam, it was an atheism with Jewish culture. Um, and she causes superstition, and that's understandable because take away God from a religion and you're left with superstition, right? Uh, again, in Christianity, I'm not trying to pick on Christianity, but in, from a Christian point of view, if you don't believe in God, why are you setting up a Christmas tree, right? If you don't believe in God, why do you have Easter eggs? Mm-hmm. And maybe they're nice symbolisms, but, they're, but they lose much of their meaning if God is not standing behind it. So the fact that David Mintz saw superstition in her atheist home is not surprising because that's what Judaism has been reduced to. So hmm. one could argue, and I, I think Brazier makes this argument, David Min looked at the beam of Judaism when she became a Christian, but it's very hard to argue that David Min looked along the beam of Judaism and became a Christian. Hmm. I think you could make that argument for Listigeid. Hmm. You know, Jews, of course, would disagree with that argument, but I think that argument could be made with someone like Lister J, because he did grow up in a religious household. He did experience Judaism in its traditional fashion, and through the beam saw, saw the cross, um, as Lucy did. But I don't think you can make that argument with David Men. I'm going to agree with you there. I did think this part was reaching. It was, it was reaching very hard, but I don't think enough evidence was really presented. And I was actually even kind of shocked that this was the argument being made to begin with, because my reading of everything that I've read about Joy, when we've had you know, biographers on the show, etc., she didn't seem that steeped in Jewish religion. I, I always saw her influence up on Lewis as in her conversion to Christianity, which necessarily includes Judaism, that she just looked at that portion of the faith with great sympathy because it had been a, a culture that she had been connected to and ethnically that she was rooted in. And so, so she therefore came to it with much more of an openness than, say, somebody that isn't Jewish and is born and raised Christian. And it's not incorrect to say that a lot of Christians have viewed the, the Jewish roots of their faith with a certain amount of 
maybe not contempt, but dismissiveness. It's like, hey, we've got version 2.0, so why don't we even have to think about this part? Uh, but because Joy was ethnically Jewish, she had a sympathy towards it. And I think that was catching. And I think you see some influence on Lois in that regard. But yeah, it kind of made it feel like it was trying to argue that she was this born and bred Jewish girl who went to temple and she really wasn't. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I think I think part of it, at least a little part of it, is probably Lewis's fault because I think his introduction to Smoky Mountain is much more Judaic than Smoky Mountain is. Wow. Okay. I'd like to like read it more carefully to like really get an idea of that. But um but you know, Lewis's point that we have here someone studying the law because um, you know, because she is Jewish and the Jews concentrate on the law. So it's true that Jews concentrate on the law, but the Decalogue and Ten Commandments have very much been uh, adopted by, by Christians. All the lawsuits that we've seen in the United States about putting the Ten Commandments. Yeah, in, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> those come from Christians. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Quite, quite the opposite. I wish all, all humanity adopted the Ten Commandments. But just because someone's concentrating on the Ten Commandments doesn't, doesn't really, I, I don't see a Jewish, a Jewish influence in that. So I think a little bit of this is Lewis's fault. Um, but some of it, I think, is Brazier really wanting Lewis to be a Hebraic Christian and having that marriage between uh, David Min and Lewis as the combining of a brave Christian and a um, uh, someone who, who returned to his Christian roots, I think that would be a great story. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a great proof for Brazier. I just don't think it's really true. Yeah. But you certainly can see an influence of joy upon Lewis. You see reflections on the Psalms coming out. You definitely see more of a focus on things Hebraic in the latter part of his life. In your notes that you sent me, you pointed out that he never mentions Till We Have Faces. And I could just hear Andrew going, no. (laughs) You could look here, three pages of of, uh, of Lewis's work (laughs) in the bibliography and Till We Have Faces is not there. I checked twice just to make sure that Andrew wouldn't be upset. It was funny because I never really thought about it before, but I would actually argue if you wanted to connect it to to the earlier portions of the Bible, I would connect it to the book of Judges with Japheth. Uh, it's, it's a little bit different, but he sacrificed his daughter because he made a rash oath. Yes. Now, King Trom sacrifices his daughter because it means that he doesn't have to die. Yes. So there are certainly some differences, but I don't know. I think give me and Andrew a little bit of time. I'm pretty sure we could come up with a really good case uh, for Till We Have Faces. I wanted to argue, I did this with the back and forth of my blog. Um, I wanted to argue that Till We Have Faces is a evolution from paganism to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And in that sense was ahistorical because it skips the Judaism part. Sure. And so I wanted to argue that um, at that point that Lewis was not concentrating on the Judaic roots of Christianity mm-hmm. um, as evidenced by Till We Have Faces. And I think I still buy that argument. Now, I'm, I'm convinced now after reading Brazier's work that Lewis did not at all skip the Jewish part of, of, of Christianity. So I'm grateful to Brazier for noting that and pointing, and, and pointing that out. But the fact that his final work does not, to me, seem to really mention Judaism or, or hint to it, um, if David Moon was such an influence from a Jewish perspective, I would have expected to see something more akin to a Judaism in something like Till We Have Faces. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe Lewis was just concentrating on the story of Psyche, and that's what just 
built the entire story and there was no place for a Jewish parallel to it. Mm-hmm. It's also possible. But Brazier's general thesis that David Mim is somehow a fulfillment of, um, or a climax of Lewis's Hebraic inkling status falls short to me. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I would also say, I think if you try to introduce that aspect to Till We Have Faces, it would completely collapse because it's deep and rich enough already. But what I'm really hearing you say is because of this deficiency, Till We Have Faces can't be Lewis's best book, in contrast to The Great Divorce, <laughs> who has Sarah Smith of Galter's Green. Thank you very much. <laughs> we spoke about Till We Have Faces a little bit last time and I shared some of my views, my views on that. Okay, maybe that's best for a different time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that's next time. <laughs> Before you finish the section, uh, he speaks about Lewis's response to his wife's death and seeing this as significant with regard to this ideal of a Hebraic inkling. So I, I wonder whether this is Hebraic per se. Brazier wants to make this a Job-like experience. And I accept that. Clearly, you know, if, if you read um, a Brief Observed, Lewis does at least question why is God doing this to him? Um, and I think that's that's natural and reasonable, you know, and, and to say that it has parallels with Job uh, and the questions that surround him in terms of theodicy and the like, I think is, is certainly reasonable. And not just Lewis, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, many people go through uh, situations like that and end up questioning, uh, questioning God or at a minimum questioning why God, why God does this. And those those are all reasonable and I would say natural concerns for anyone, anyone of faith. He does then get into this question, meaning is, is Job Jewish? Um, and that is a question that, you know, Lewis himself says that Job is a story that is, uh, that is made up. Interestingly enough, in Jewish tradition, we have um, numerous views as to Job. Lewis or Brazier um, does point out that one of, the, one of Job's friends is Eliphaz Temani. Um, which speaks to the fact that maybe he is a descendant of, uh, of Esau, if I'm pronouncing it correctly in English, I apologize, in Genesis. So Esau's eldest son is Eliphaz. Um, and so that leads a number of uh, Jewish um, sages to suggest that Job is a real person who was alive at the time of the Jewish forefathers. Clearly, though, not Jewish, because he's not in Genesis. But perhaps he's a real individual. Um, and in that case, the, you know, the, the sages that would then say is that Elihu, who is the one who comes at the end, not one of the original three friends, but the, but the fourth one, who basically echoes God, um, is, is our forefather Isaac. And so that's one way that Judaism, um, looks at it. But there is an opinion, uh, as well that Job never existed. And this is a made up story. So especially if you hold that latter view, um, and you hold Lewis's view, um, the point would be that this is not a, Jewish story. This is a human story. Now, of course, uh, as Jews and, and, and as, as Christians, we believe that the Bible speaks to all of humanity. And so in a sense, the entire Bible is a human story rather than specifically a Jewish uh, and or Christian story. But, uh, but Job especially, because you know, bad things happening to good people does not respect any sort of boundaries, uh, be they ethnic, um, racial, uh, religious, or, or anything else. And so Brazier then says this is, as it were, a climax and an ultimate fulfillment of Lewis's conversion. I'm not sure. Um, Brazier kind of asserts that. I don't really see a proof 
to that no. um, outside of saying that the only way to truly convert is to struggle for it or the only way to truly feel something that's important is to struggle for it that has some truth um but i'm not convinced that of brazier's assertion that this is somehow um a deeper conversion as much as it's a terrible situation that many people feel and that hopefully people come out stronger in their faith for were I writing this book, I would have pivoted and spoken about Jacob wrestling with the Lord and then receives the name Israel, literally means one who wrestles with God. Yes. That's how I would have described a grief observed because Lewis had already dealt with the problem of pain in the abstract. And honestly, he'd done it in his life as well with the death of his mother, issues with his dad and family, alcoholism, all this kind of stuff. But with Joy's death, this was the point when he really had to uh, wrestle with God and ask those questions that everybody asks when somebody that they love dies. I like that too. That's a really good point, David. Um, I'm not against the the parallel with Job. I think that has its place also in terms of the struggling with religion per se, as opposed to religious theology. Um, I think Jacob is a is a better parallel. That makes a lot of sense. Brazier spends uh, a, a few pages uh, talking about the marriage between Lewis and Davidman and whether that is appropriate based on the church's teaching. And he notes that there were many in the Anglican church who were not willing to marry the two because Davidman had been previously married to Bill Gresham. I have to say, that part is the most abrasive part of the entire book. <laughs> Delving into the law and coming up with differentiations, understanding its details, you know, pushing it forward, that's very Hebraic. That's what the Talmud does, you know. And I think to me, it shows the preciousness of God's word. Again, Brazier doesn't, doesn't read it as such, but I think maybe he would buy on. If words came from God, then you need to understand them in all of its gory detail. And obviously we know um, Jesus' attack on the Pharisees, that they're paying too much attention to detail, missing the forest for the trees, is uh, one that Jesus wasn't the first one to point out. Uh, many of the prophets have pointed that out previously, especially with respect to the sacrifices. Uh, one could argue that most of the 12 minor prophets actually spend all their time on that and an attack that uh, you know, rightfully continues till, till this day, um, that sometimes the details blot out you know, the forest. And so that's a certainly, certainly reasonable attack for people who deserve it. Um, and I'm not excluding myself necessarily from that. But I thought that was like the most abrasive thing. Like, you know, so I am convinced that Brazier is a Hebraic inkling, or he would be an inkling if he was alive at that time, because his, his knowledge is expansive, his insight is, uh, is excellent. Um, so I have no, there's no question in my mind that he would be an inkling if he had been in the right place in the right time. And I am convinced that Brazier is Hebraic. Is Lewis Hebraic? <laughs> Not as Hebraic as Brazier is, but certainly... Um, I think for the important parts uh, in terms of his general approach and theology to Christianity, it would seem to me that Brazier makes generally a good case and also demonstrates to me that I made a mistake last year. I should have claimed Lewis for my own as all the other you know, <laughs> Christian guests did on the uh, ecumenical have, uh, yeah. month and I, uh, and I didn't. So I want to go back and, uh, and reclaim Lewis as, as Jewish even though, obviously, uh, only to the point of being a Hebraic England. <laughs> Just for the sake of equality, I am perfectly happy for you to claim that here. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, in the few minutes we've got left, are there any sort of concluding thoughts about this book? Or one question I thought of, what would you like to see addressed in any future book about Lewis and his relationship to the children of Israel and uh, Judaism? So a couple of things. I wonder if there's any other evidence on Lewis's interactions with Jews or in general non-Christians, or let me say believers in a non-Christian religion. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Brazier mentions the description of his stepson, David. Let me just note that Douglas is willing to speak about David, um, should not only be regarded as a candid uh, admission of a character who has been left out of the biographies of C.S. Lewis, but really is a a courageous and brave thing to do. Uh, His willingness to open up private parts of a family relationship for the good of the broader public to learn from Lewis takes a lot of a, a lot of courage um, and a lot of um, spiritual stature. And um, I think we shall really be thankful to Douglas for his willingness to speak about his brother, as painful as I'm sure, as I'm sure it was for him. So w- with that being said, um, we have this one case then of Lewis interacting intimately with someone who at least for the time being was faithful to traditional Judaism and his willingness to go out of the way with respect to kosher food um, and all that entails, which uh, if anyone has not been in a kosher kitchen, believe me, it entails quite a lot. <laughs> and so that's, that, that's good. Um, one could make the argument, and I don't want to make this argument, but one could make the argument, well, there's a difference because um, uh, David is, is his stepson uh, who he loves and certainly loved Joy Davidman. How would Lewis interact with um, someone else who was a religious person uh, of a non-Christian religion is kind of still in the open air. So I, I wonder whether there were any students of Lewis's or, or, or somebody who interacted strongly with Lewis who was religious in Judaism, Islam, or any, in any other non-Christian uh, religion. Mm. I do like that. I would like to see a little bit more primary, primary sources. On, on his interactions. And I am still looking for the Islamic version of you, because I'm sure somebody has to be out there who subscribes to Islam and still likes Lewis. If I knew someone, I would tell you, but I, I, would, I would assume that there is. There are a lot more um, uh, Muslims in the world than there are Jews. There has to be somebody, right? How could there not be anybody? I will find them. <laughs> yeah. I also do wonder, like, is there any way, did any, did any non-Christian ever write to Lewis that his works inspired them, right? If, if you read through Michael Ward's um, Planet Narnia, so then you see Ward quotes a number of people um, and talks about the universal appeal of the Chronicles of Narnia to non-Christians. And I wonder whether Lewis was aware of that, uh, knew people like that, what he thought of, of that. That I think, I think would be very interesting also. What would Lewis's response be? Mm to somebody who said, I've grown in my Judaism based on your works. Obviously, I hope it will be positive. Yeah. Um, and as long as I have no proof otherwise, I will continue that, uh, that belief. But it would be really interesting to, it would be really interesting to know. I would expect it to be positive because he says something very similar when he's talking about uh, people of other religions and about how God might be using the quote-unquote good parts, the bits of their religion that Christianity would affirm to be true, using those parts to grow them spiritually. And so I would imagine that if a Buddhist or a Hindu 
read the Chronicles of Narnia and said that it helped them grow spiritually, I think he would have to be happy. I would hope so. So I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna stick with <laughs> yeah. that one until someone can prove uh, can prove otherwise. Now, just before we wrap up, I sent you the cover graphics for today's episode, and you pointed out something rather interesting. Now, I would love to say that um, I chose it on purpose, but um, <laughs> I I put our pictures on there, and I just search for Hebraic text, and I slapped that on. And you pointed out something rather interesting. And I would just like to end with this. Sure. So I assume everybody's going to be able to see to, to see the picture, right? Yes, I'll I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. So, so if you look at the text, it's uh, it's from Genesis, and I'm sorry, David, I didn't write down where in Genesis it was. You probably have it there somewhere. Uh, twenty one. Okay. So it's, it is from Genesis twenty one, um, and the story there is uh, an interaction between Abraham and Abimelech, who is the king of Gerar, which is a city that uh, Abraham was in. And when Abraham was in that city, he dug a number of wells, wells, um, and the digging of wells, which is done by both Abraham and Isaac. Um, has important symbolism within Judaism, especially a general connection between um, uh, water and the Torah, which is you know the Bible and all that goes with it. For example, we compare Judaism to uh, to fish, Jews to fish swimming in the waters of Torah. If there is no Torah, so then just as if there's no water, fish won't survive. If there's no Torah, then then Jews won't survive. But the assumption then is that Abraham digging of wells is not simply the economic benefit of himself and for those around him, but also for their spiritual benefits. Um, and the fact that Abraham can dig wells demonstrates that he also is teaching those around him um, the religion of the one God and how people should come closer closer to him. But, but what happens is Abimelech's servants, Abimelech is the king, Abimelech's servants claim the water for themselves. Um, and they want to, then in this symbolic way, they want to remove that teaching of the one God because presumably it threatens uh, their own theology or perhaps even the king himself, um, given that in um, many ancient tribes uh, and nations, the king was regarded as divine or at least um, a descendant of the divine. You know, so Abraham eventually moves from Gerar, but Abimelech realizes that Abraham is kind of a pretty important guy and that in fact God is with him and uh, and wants to make a truce with Abraham. So he comes out um, uh, and makes a truce with uh, truce with Abraham. And they exchange pleasantries, they exchange gifts. And that's the part that's uh, right there in, in the text. So we have a Jew, the first Jew, talking to a non-Jew who is pretty convinced of the uh, centrality of, of the one God and therefore requests a truce with Abraham. And the fact that they can you know, in modern day, we say shake hands um, and part ways in peace, I think is what all, um, all certainly all monotheistic religions would like to do, to be able to influence others, not in Judaism, not necessarily to convert others, but influence them in a positive way to become closer to God and become more ethical people. And so given that this is a um, conversation that we're having between a Jew and a Christian, I thought this was rather appropriate and uh, well chosen. Yeah. So for the non-Hebrew speakers among us, uh, we would call him King Abimelech. But uh, when Yaakov sent me that message saying that, that I'd chosen some texts of the meeting of Abraham and King Abimelech, it was like the meeting of a Jew and a Gentile king. I am there. <laughs> <laughs> Yaakov Weinstein, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
As the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, I'll just say that I'm putting links in the show notes to the book which we've been discussing, which was a Hebraic inkling. Uh, but Yakov, is there anything that you'd like to advertise now? Blog posts, interviews? Please feel free. Anyone who wants to uh, learn a little bit more of some of my thoughts on Lewis, and especially on the Chronicles of Narnia, which is my favorite books of Lewis, everyone is welcome, Jew, Christian, non-Jew, um, anyone who wants to go on to Torah from Narnia, which is my blog, which I try to find some insights, um, one Jew's insights uh, into the Chronicles of Narnia. Everyone is welcome, of course. Thanks again to Yakov Weinstein for coming on the show. Thanks for audio engineer, Taylor Schroll. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Matt1, Matt2, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for all of you every week and all of the prayer requests on our Slack channel. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and try and be a bit more of a Hebraic inkling today. And please join us next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.